was it bad? What was it like working with him, working with her? You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. Today, I am so honored to welcome my guest, Broadway legend Ken Page. Ken Page has appeared on Broadway in such groundbreaking shows as Cats, where he played all Deuteronomy, and Ain't Misbehavin' both in 1978 and 1988. He also played Nicely Nicely Johnson in the all-black revival of Guys and Dolls, and replaced as the lion in The Wiz and as a performer in It Ain't Nothing But The Blues. On screen, he made a big impression in The Nightmare Before Christmas, Torch Song Trilogy, and Dreamgirls, among others. And as a director, he has taken on The Fantastics, Barefoot in the Park, Carousel, and more. He is the author of Café, Chanson, and Nightlife. And this last installment in Backstage Babble's Pride Month is being released on July 1st to remind us that the message of pride should continue throughout the year. So, without further ado, the amazing Ken Page. Well, I'd love to start by asking you how you first became interested in theater. Well, I started out basically um, when I was in grade school, and I started doing speech tournaments uh, here in St. Louis, where I live now, but where I was from, am from. And um, there was a thing called the Bellarmine Speech League, which was a competitive intramural speech tournament that went on once or twice a year, I forget now. But, um, and my cousin had been in it and I'd gone to some speech meets with him. So I was aware of what it was. And we had this wonderful, wonderful teacher that came to our school and she instituted the speech program. And that's basically how I started in reality, you know. Uh, in our eighth grade, uh, she came and she started a music program, speech program, all these things at our school. We didn't have it. And uh, I uh, competed for, I think, two years when she was there, two or one year. And I also did the same thing in high school, which was the same um, speech league. And that's really how I started. And I started music at the same. I started music actually in fourth grade because I was singing with a choir directed by the same nun who was at a different school at that time. But we would go and uh, and sit in with the choir of the school, and that's how I started music. And she was also instrumental in me starting the theater uh, speech training. And that was fourth grade for music, seventh eighth grade for her drama. Were you exposed to a lot of theater or movies at that time? I wasn't really exposed to a lot of theater because there wasn't. Well, I won't say there wasn't any because I did the first thing when I was about eleven. I went to the Muni which then was called the St. Louis Municipal Opera, but it's now called The Muni. A lot of people are familiar with it. And I went there to see a production of Oklahoma, was my first production there. Uh, and it's an 11,000-seat theater. I've worked there now for many, many years. I've got 43 productions there. But anyway, when I went there when I was 11, that was my first real exposure to a professional theater. And like I said, that was Oklahoma, starting Robert Horton. And then I went back. I saw several shows there, but the two that stand out is the first one, Oklahoma. And then we went back to see uh, the late, great Pearl Bailey and Cap Calloway 
in the all black uh, revival of Hello of Hello Dolly. And were there performers you saw who you thought I want to be like that? Or yes, specifically thinking of, of Hello Dolly because it was an all African American company. They had taken over for the original Broadway company with Carol Channing. Probably replaced her and so forth. So when I saw them, I think it was the first time because you know you saw people on television and not so much like I said in the movies, but on TV. And I saw performers, but Hollywood film. Uh, television seemed like it could have been on Venus or Mars to me. It had no relationship. It was just something that was inside the box that you looked at. Theater, seeing it live, I could see the people and I knew they were there. And it was the thing that sort of inspired me to think, well, maybe I can do that. I already loved it because I was a big, I listened to all Broadway cast albums all the time and all that sort of thing. But once I saw shows on the stage, again, first times at the Muni, uh, when I was younger, I saw several. And it started to uh, ignite in me the possibility that it was real. And since I was aware that I could sing and when I started drama, I thought maybe that's something I could really do. And it lit the fire in me. How did your family feel about your aspirations to becoming a performer? Well, I think they sort of probably knew it before I did in some ways, right? You know, everybody's family pretty much, especially some years ago, in their best wishes for you, they wanted you to do something that was stable and and something, you know, like a doctor, a lawyer, a teacher or something like that. And when you said you were going into show business or theater, as it were, that was an abstract. I mean, nobody in my family was in uh, show business or the arts so it wasn't something that they really understood or knew what it was nobody really spoke against it because again like I said I had been doing it since I was a child and my cousin played piano and tap danced it was in the choirs thing so the idea of performing was there uh, and I was in college and I remember uh, uh, my grandmother said to me when I said I was moving to New York I think that was the big one that said, wait a minute, he's going to leave school and he's going to New York. And God bless her, she was my champion. But she said, when are you going to stop this and do something serious? And rather than that being sort of something that deterred me, it, it ignited in me the, the idea that how serious I was about it. When she said, are you going to do, when are you going to do something serious? I thought, then you have no idea how serious I am about this. And this is serious. But I had had the exposure of seeing people do it professionally. By this point, I had been in the ensemble at the Muni. And I had done South Pacific and Teresa Merritt, great Teresa Merritt was Bloody Mary. And she'd given me advice. And Roberta Peters, the great opera singer, uh, light opera at the time, had been in Bittersweet. And Herschel Bernardi, I was stood on the roof of Mandible Munch. So all these professional people I had worked with by that time. And I knew that it was real. It was serious, quote unquote, right? So for me, I just used that as an impetus to really go for it. Um, but I won't say they were negative by any means. I think they didn't actually understand it, but I was already different and had been in the arts that they didn't necessarily understand already for a few years. So I think they, what they did is they really wished me success at what I was doing. For me to pack up my bags and move to New York at 20 years old was a big deal. And I think nobody expected it because I was very shy and sort of quiet. And I think people thought, I remember the costume uh, designer, director at the Muni, said to me, you're never, gonna. he didn't say you're never going to make it. He just thought I was too shy and too withdrawn to battle New York. 
But my theme song was always, and still is, Don't Rain on My Parade. <laughs> and I knew that I could do it. They didn't know yet, but I knew I could do it. Yeah, yeah. And what was some of that helpful advice that you received from the stars that you worked with at the Muni? Uh, the one piece of advice I always remember from Teresa Merritt when I was doing South Pacific, I sat down with her one day. And again, at this point, I was 18 years old and she was, you know, an established star and so forth. And I said, uh, Miss Merritt, you know, I really want to go to New York. And her answer to me was, why? And I thought, oh, my God, I didn't expect to say that. And she said, why? I said, well, uh, because I, I, I have to. And she said, good, that's the right answer. She said, because anything less than that will not serve you well. You have to want it bad enough to deal with all the rejection and the hardships and the things that go along with it, especially at the beginning. I'm here to tell you, they continue. <laughs> they don't stop other than the beginning. But at the beginning, it's new to you. So, you know, the setbacks and the rejection can be very daunting. And she said, it's the only reason to do it because you have to because it's not a choice, because it's something you're driven to do, and that will keep you going. So that was the best advice I ever got, because it set me up for the reality of going to New York and dealing with it. And it was exactly as she said, you know, you go to an audition, you go to 20 auditions, and you may not get any of them. Or if you go to 20, you might get one job, you know, but you multiply that times how many months, how many years. I was very lucky, but... Um, you do, you do face a lot of rejection and it doesn't stop. I mean, it goes on for actors forever. So, you know, her advice was port, important and potent and it's still true. And what was your studying experience like in terms of college and as you got older and all of that? Uh, I was a theater major. I had gotten three scholarships to my uh, college, which is now a university, Fontbonne, F-O-N-T-B-O-N-N-E, French. And um, I'd gotten a scholarship in, mu in uh, music voice performance. And I got a scholarship in the art department. And they offered me a scholarship in the theater department. And of course, theater I love, but I also sang. So there was the music. But the art and the music department were very, very demanding. You had a lot of, of, of long double class courses and things. And also one of the rules for the performance major in the music department was you couldn't do anything else. You had to be totally committed to just doing that. And I thought, that means I can't be in any plays. I can't do anything. So that went off the list. I thought, I already sing. I've been studying. I can always take private voice lessons. You know, I, I think I lost out in terms of theory and learning and things like that. But I thought I can get that somewhere else. The art department I love, but art for me was sort of a side thing. And again, they had huge courses where you had to take them three hours long and you had projects. And I thought I can't really do that. Theater was the thing, again, that I was driven by. So I chose the, the theater scholarship and I did two years there. And it was really because I loved it so much, I absorbed everything everything. And I had wonderful teachers, uh, the head of our department, Sister Mary Charity, who was our voice and diction teacher. I remember she would, <laughs> she would, wouldn't you, couldn't you? you know, she gave us all the diction things. And um, Don Garner, who had been in the business professionally, was sort of the quote unquote head of the department. And he had been in the business. So he had a very different perspective than some academics 
who've never been in a business have. He knew what it really was, and he could see the ones who were going to be teachers and the ones who were kind of enjoying it, but they weren't necessarily uh, dedicated, and the few of us who were very serious about it. And he sort of dealt with us equally but differently, if that makes sense. Uh, when I told him I wanted to leave school, he took me in his office and he shut the door and he said, listen, I as a teacher am supposed to tell you to stay in school because that's my job as a professor here. As someone who loves the theater and has been in the theater, and he also was a, a, a contract player in Hollywood back in the day and so forth, he said, I think you should go to New York. He said, while the fire is burning in you to do it, and again, you know, combat all those negative things like rejection, you should go now. He said, if you keep studying or whatever, you can pick up the other things you would get in the next two years here. Now you'll go, you won't have a degree to fall back on and all those other things, but you will have your career begun. And just as a footnote, by the time my class graduated from college, I was in my second Broadway show. So I felt like I sort of graduated, <laughs> you know, I got my degree. Um, uh, but I was, I was very fortunate to have really great teachers. I mean, I studied restoration and because there weren't a lot of men, the school had been a all women's college, <laughs> excuse me, an all women's college. <clears throat> and they had gone co-ed. The men in the department got to do a lot. A lot of ac academies and conservatories, you don't get to go on stage after your sophomore year. In our school, I was on, the first play I did was a uh, play called The Royal Gambit, which was about Henry VIII and his wives, his six wives. And I got to play Henry, my Henry, my first year in college. I was up for it. I probably wasn't as good as I think I was, but. <laughs> but I was able to do it. And that practicum really was, was valuable to me because I learned all the time. I remember we had this one wonderful teacher named Joan Hansen. And we were rehearsing and there was a scene where Catherine Carr, one of the wives, tells me that she's had an affair with the Lord Chamberlain. And I was supposed to start to cry because I really loved her. But since she had, you know, done this, I would, of course, have to put her to death. That was Henry VIII, right? And I was doing something with my shoulders going, and the teacher in the dark out in the auditorium in the room, she said, catch had a really little bitty voice. She's a big woman, huge woman, with a little bitty bitty voice. And she said, Ken? Like, yes. She said, what are you doing? <laughs> I said, I'm crying. She said, oh, is that what you're doing? <laughs> Which was embarrassing enough. And she said, okay turn on the lights and let's talk about crying. And I thought, oh no. And all the girls who were the wives were like sophomores, I mean, uh, juniors and seniors. And they were like, ah, oh, a freshman, you know? So because it was a learning experience and not a, a performance rehearsal for like a, a regular book show, we got to stop and learn as we went along. It wasn't like you just had to go through rehearsal because you had two hours and the show opens on Friday. And we stopped and we talked about crying and the emotional well and the physicalization and where it comes from and sense memory and all those sorts of things. So that's the kind of training I got, even in this, just those two years. And it really served me well, again, because I was very serious about it, I absorbed everything I could. So I had great training to go with, even only after two years. Was there a particular time or a particular reason that you decided to leave college and go to New York or did that? Just yes, because the two summers of my freshman year and sophomore year, I was in the ensemble at the Muni. 
And of course, I was working with professionals and shows were being brought in then from Broadway and so forth. And I will never forget, I'd say the one catalyst that tipped the scale was they brought in the musical Seesaw from Broadway. Uh, that was choreographed for Michael Bennett and all these wonderful people, some of whom ended up in chorus line and whatever, were in the show. And it was a show written uh, on the play, Two for the Seesaw. And the background was New York and the lead female character was a, a choreographer, dance teacher who was having an affair with this uh, politician from out of town. So the whole show had this very New York vibe, all the dancers, as we call them, then the gypsies were people, names that a lot of theater people will know, like Bayard Lee, Tommy Toon was in it, it was his first Tony, uh, Judy Gibson, uh, just a number, number of people. All, all of them were Broadway's best because they were working with Michael Bennett. Well, when I saw these people, and because I was working at the theater, got to meet them. They were so New York and they were all young and full of energy and life. And they were so good. And the show was all about New York and so forth. And after I saw the show that summer, that fall, I said, that's it. I got to go. I got to get to New York. I got to do it now. Right. So I always credit seeing that company of Seesaw, which is the Broadway cast, with making me want to pull up stakes and go to New York. And I have to say, when I got there, it was pretty much like the musical. I mean, it was alive and I came into a small group of people who were already there. And I felt like I was living in that musical when I first got there. Um, and later on, beautifully, I got to work with a lot of those people that were in that show. I got to do Amy's Behaving with Judy Gibson, Byrick Lee is a friend, and Tommy Walsh, who was in Chorus Line originally. All these people that were in that show as ensemble members, some of them became friends later, which was sort of a full circle. Yeah, yeah. And did work and auditioning come easily to you once you got to New York? Or was well, you know, I didn't think it did. But now in retrospect, I realize it really did. I mean, I say I did everything everyone does, but I did it in a fast tra trajectory. You know, uh, my first show was a children's theater production. I think I got that. I was there maybe five, six months, which of course felt like an eternity, you know. Um, and then I got uh, a Winterstock production of Curly, which turned into a national tour, which turned into an LA premiere. All of that was within the first year and a half that I got there. And a lot of times people are there three or four years before they book things. They do a lot of other little stuff, but I really just went right ahead. And right out of Pearly, I came back to New York and maybe six months, something like that after coming back, we, um, I booked uh, the original All Black Company of Guys and Dolls, which was a Broadway show. So everything happened for me in a very truncated period of time. I went from show to show to show to show to show. And uh, looking back, it really was a short period of time to get to where I got on the end. But it felt like I was there for years, you know? Of course, you do a show and you do it two years. This show you do one year. Next show you do another two years. So the time stretches out. But the trajectory of going from show to show was pretty constant at the beginning. What was your audition process like for Guys and Dolls? Strenuous. <laughs> Strenuous. I auditioned seven times for Guys and Dolls. And in the end of all of those auditions, I was cast as the understudy. But I felt happy because it was a Broadway show. So I was going to be in my first Broadway show. And like a maybe three or four days after they uh, offered, me the uh, offered me the understudy, 
uh, I told my mother, which is always a funny story. I told my mother, I said, well, I'm in my first Broadway show. I'm the understudy for Nice and Nice to Johnson and so on. And she says, oh, just wait a couple of days. And I thought, be happy for me. I've been cast in a Broadway show. True enough, two days later, they called and they said, the gentleman they were engaging to do the role was out for whatever reason. And they were offering me the role. So I ended up in my first Broadway show by proxy, which has happened to me a lot in my career. But it turned out to be a big splash for me as a Broadway debut. And uh, with seven auditions, seven auditions. And I remember the last time I went, I had a cold by this point. I wasn't feeling well. They had heard me sing seven times, six times, you know, and I thought, well, if you don't know if you want me by now, me having a cold and whatever isn't going to really make any difference. And I did what I could do. And as you know, sit down and rock in a boat, which I had to sing. And I'm a tenor and was a pure tenor at the time. My voice has darkened over the years to baritone, sort of bass baritone. But um, the notes were very high, you know. And I, my whole top was just sort of gone with the cold. And I would say, I dreamed last night. And they were like, oh, dear. And I just had to say, I said, I'm so sorry, but I have a cold and that's it. I've sung it four times, five times. And anyway, long story short, as I said, I got the part eventually. So, Yeah, yeah. And what was the experience like of making your Broadway debut? Well, for me, I mean, I think anytime you make a Broadway debut, it's auspicious, as they say. But it was really amazing because, again, Guys and Dolls is such a great show, isn't it? And I knew it already because I knew all the, you know, classic musicals and so forth. Um, and to get to do a role like that. And, you know, nowadays they don't, even in my time, this was a show that had been originally done in the 40s. And in even my time, and certainly now, they don't really write as often they do but not as often great supporting roles like that like nicely nicely and roles you could name in other shows um so it was a great way to come into broadway as a, as a debut um in my production they uh make a long story short about it they added an encore to the number sit down you rock and vote they changed the last eight bars to something more gospel and more orientated towards african-american uh, music and it was doing that little bit did so well out of town that people kept yelling more, more, more. And there was no more. right? So then they decided, they said, well, you know, look, they're asking for more. And you never say no to an audience if they want more. So they uh, wrote this encore for the number based on the number. And I forget where we put it in. If it was out of town, I imagine it must have been. I don't remember now. But at any rate. Uh, we did the encore and we did it. I mean, it was written to do, but we only did it in response to the audience's enthusiasm. If you did the song, you finish it. And they said, that's very lovely. Let's move on. You just moved on. If they yelled for more, you had something to do. So by the time we got to Broadway and the show opened, you know, they always wanted more. So that was great. But I, I think the most encores I did was maybe four or three, three, let's say three. Uh, uh, one night, and they just wouldn't stop applauding. I'd do the whole line, and it was a big deal. The encore was a big, full-on gospel thing, you know. And I finished one, and I'd sit down, and they kept applauding, 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 applauding. And I would sort of do a little something like I was going to start again. They'd scream and yell some more, and I'd get up and I'd do it again, and I'd get up and I'd do it again. So the one night that we did it three times, it was uproarious because. The audience, I think it got to the point where they were just ready to just see how many of them I could do, you know. And the people on stage with me were kind of like, 
are you going to do it again? Oh, my God. But, of course, I was 21 years old, so I was able to, I had a lot of stamina and a lot of energy. Uh, but it was a big deal for me as a Broadway debut in Hanson. Uh, uh, it certainly put me on the map. I won a Theater World Award for it, which is, oh, they give it to you as an auspicious debut in the New York theater. It's not just Broadway, but they give it to you. You don't compete for it. They either give it to you or they don't. And they, uh, John Willis, God rest him, from the Theater World Award, awarded me the Theater World Award that year. Uh, actually, it was kind of like the following year. I was already in The Wiz by the time I got it for Guys and Dolls. Uh, but it was a wonderful thing. And I remember um, Kay Medford, who played Fanny Bryce's mother in Funny Girl, and I adored her. She was at the awards that day. And, uh, you know, I was excited and I was young and I didn't really know what the theater world was. Right? I only knew about the Tony Awards. I didn't know about the drama desk, adequate, none of those things. I only knew about the Tony. And I got my award and she said to me, she said, darling, treasure this one. She said, this one is the one you'll always remember because one, they select you. You don't compete. And it's the first one you'll always remember. And, and I, I remember thinking when I got it, I wasn't in the show anymore. So I couldn't go to the cast and say, look what I want. I was in another show and they didn't want to know about the fact that I, that I got an award for a show I'd just been in. So it was a very sort of, but it was lovely that day. A lot of the older people who were there, who were old vets, Broadway vets, were very kind to me. There was a wonderful actress named B. Wynn, African-American actress, who sort of took me under her wing that day. I was by myself. And, uh, it was a memorable day, but that was sort of the culmination of Guys and Dolls when I got the award. Award. And certainly now, years later, I've done the show at least a couple more times. I've done it at the Hollywood Bowl. I did it in Sacramento. I sing the song in my concerts and things. So it really was a very wonderful gift that was given to me right at the beginning. And A. Burroughs, who was alive at the time, said to me, he says, you can always say you got a signature song now. And of course, the song had been originated by Stubby K, who was amazing and wonderful. But I earned it, you know, and I still sing it. And when anyone asks, I would say, well, you know, of course, it was done first by someone else. Stubby K was wonderful. But this is my version, which thank goodness we did that encore, because it made it a different number than it had been in the beginning. I would be curious to know what your collaboration was like with A. Burroughs and Billy Wilson, who was the Yes, the great director, Billy Wilson and choreographer. I love Billy. Billy was one of my mentors. He really was because, you know, I was starting out and there weren't a lot of African-American directors. Certainly not. I mean, there were a lot of there were few African-American choreographers, but not a lot of directors. So he was one among two or three, you know. And so his whole, I mean, it was a rough road for him with the show. It was a hard go, but I learned so much from him and we became friends, not just uh, professional colleagues. And I learned a lot from him. And A. Burroughs, I mean, my goodness, you know, again, you don't think about it when you're doing it because he's alive and it's guys and dolls and you're starting out. But many years later, I was doing it out at the Hollywood Bowl and his daughter was there. And she was talking about the show and the trajectory of all the different fermentations that had gone through in productions and so forth. And she turned and she was talking about the production uh, that we did, the old black production. And, and, and I might add at the bowl, we were able to do, we didn't do the encore, but we did the change last eight bars. The uh, uh, lesser foundation allowed us to do that. And she said to me in front of the company, she says, well, you know, the show's had so many different versions and blah, 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 blah. And there was one. She said, well, can you know? And everybody turned and looked at me. And I guess they were thinking, like, how old are you? <laughs> you know, but they didn't. I think they weren't aware that 
excuse me, that Abe Burroughs actually worked on our production. He was a production supervisor. And he taught me a lot of things about comedy because he wrote the book, co-wrote the book. And he would tell me the one, two, three uh, beats of comedy or beat of comedy, the setup, the delivery, the punchline, something like that. And he was telling me things that I just really didn't know. I mean, I had a natural instinct, but he would say, no, sometimes the instinct won't. You have to follow the real comedy rules and such and such and such. He says, and this show is foolproof if you do it this way. He says, you can color it any way, you know, whatever. He said, but if you follow the beats of comedy, the, the jokes will always land. I had this one moment where I walked in and they were saying, see, where have you been? We've been waiting on you. We've been waiting on the news. And I walked out eating a sandwich. That was a joke, you know? And I was, I would stand there with the sandwich. I go, well, I had to, you know, I couldn't, I had to go get something to eat. I felt a little faint. And it would get a nice laugh because I was a big guy and I had the sandwich. And Abe said to me, he says, well, first of all, what you have to do, you have to take a bite. Don't answer right away. I said, okay. He said, when they say, where have you been? Nicely something. He said, take a bite. That'll get a laugh. I said, oh, okay. He says, and then swallow the first bite. That's two, right? He said, and then with food in your mouth, you have to say, I had to get something to eat. I felt a little faint, <laughs> you know? And I thought, Oh, and sure enough, when I did it with those three beats, it got a, an uproarious response of humor. And that was from him. So I learned that and I used it in other shows, different versions of it and so forth. So it was great. And I mean, now in retrospect, how many people can say they work with A. Burroughs, you know? Uh, how to Succeed in Business, Guys and Dolls, maybe a couple of other things he worked on. But people of my age, I don't think there's a lot of us other than the company of that show. And of course, How to Succeed, which was before us, uh, that can say they worked with the great eight boroughs. But I'm very, very proud of that. And I learned a lot from him. He and Billy Wilson. Were there changes made to the production in the revival that you did? And what were some of the biggest ones? Um, there were no... Um, major changes the real changes that you could say that were signature was they changed the orchestrations the lesser foundation headed by joe sullivan lesser got the late joe sullivan lesser they didn't allow you to change any of the notes that's why my thing with sit down you're rocking a boat was such a big deal because they didn't allow any changes they literally had a man sit there with the score while we were rehearsing and if you changed one note or added one riff or one bibbity, they would say, no, 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 can't do that. They were policing us. So there you go. But um, uh, uh, so they changed the orchestrations to be very of the period. Again, this was 1976. So when you listen to the cast album, which is available, Motown Records, you can still get it. You'll hear these really just slightly disco tinged uh, orchestrations for some of the things, particularly the overture, the numbers weren't done that way but in the overture you could hear a little bit of bark, 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 you know, the guitar from the and but they were scintillating i mean if i were a bell probably is the best version the show has ever had not only because ernestine jackson was amazing but the orchestration was so amazing you know needless to say it's now you're rocking the boat other than the last eight bars was pretty much the way it had always been they didn't change a lot they changed some of the beat like in uh, i'll uh, i'll know uh, the, the sky part of the song. It had a little more underbeat to it, things like that. So they gave the show a foundation in the orchestration that supported the difference in the voices of the African-American cast. But they didn't 
overall change a lot of things. One thing they did do, because at the time, I guess there was some treaty about, because the show says, you know, that Sky takes Sarah to Havana. Well, at the time, you couldn't say Havana. You couldn't go to Cuba. I don't know, whatever, right? So they had to change it to San Juan. They went to Puerto Rico instead of going to Cuba. Bit of a difference, you know, but the cultures are similar. So they could do sort of a same, it served the same purpose, but it was a different location. So they did change that. Uh, it was still, you know, con, con, con leche or whatever, all the stuff was still the same. Um, and I can't think of anything else that they really changed very much. Everything else was pretty much straight down the line from the original. Yeah. And how did this sort of segue into the Wiz? And how did the Wiz happen after this? Well, during Guys and Dolls, I think it was during it. Yeah, I think I was in the show. Yes. I did a cabaret club act, they called them at the time, concert. And in it, I did a tribute to all the shows, black shows were running on Broadway. And there were a lot at the time. There was Guys and Dolls, Bobby Brown Sugar, Tremendisha, the Houston Grand Opera's Porgy and Bess, Your Arms Too Short to Box with God, Me and Bessie. There were a lot of black shows. They used to, matter of fact, I remember the New York Times had a thing was at the Great Black Way instead of the Great White Way. Uh, it hasn't happened again, but it happened then, which was wonderful. Um, in my show, I sort of did numbers from all the black shows that were running, ending with, of course, my own number from Guys and Dolls. But I did show songs from Raisin, which I forgot to mention, which is best was the best musical. Uh, I did numbers from everything. Okay, so I did stuff from uh, Mino Lion from The Wiz. And I bridged them all together singing He's On Down the Road. I'd sing a song from Raisin and it would go Come on in, he's on down, he's on down the road. And I'd say, now we go to Bubble Ground Sugar, we go to this one. And um, the cast, some of the cast from The Wiz came to see the show. And Clarice Taylor, who was out of Pearl in the original company of The Wiz, went back to Ken Harper, the producer, and said, you should see this guy who was in, who did his cabaret act at Les Mouches, it was. And um, he's the guy from Guys and Dolls, because there was a lot of hoopla about me at the time. So Guys and Dolls closed, and I got a call to come in to uh, audition for The Wiz. And I had auditioned back you know, and earlier, but they were just sort of filling the files, casting files. They weren't really looking for anybody. And my agent, I said, well, you know, I already auditioned for it. They didn't really like me. He said, no, 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 you don't understand. They asked for you to come in. It wasn't like you went in begging them for a job. They were asking for you. So I went in and I sang me no line, which luckily I already knew. And uh, Ken Harper was there. And he said to me, uh, he walked up to the foot of the stage. And I'll always remember this because it was so show busy it was like out of a bio movie he walked up to the foot of the stage he says you were great you were wonderful i said well thank you mr harper <laughs> yeah thank you he says now you know what i want you to do and i think he's going to give me a you know an adjustment or something he says i want you to go downstairs and get them to take your measurements and i still was like that's just in case you know and he shook my hand he said congratulations you are a new lion and it was like magic you know, because The Wiz was a best musical, huge hit at the time, and not easy to get into because it was a huge hit and it was such a gate opener, as it would be, Wizard of Oz, that reference. Um, and that was it, you know. I was in the show and I went in and had an amazing two-year run there. And uh, But anyway, that's how I got into The Wiz, just to answer the question, yeah. And how did you sort of bring your own interpretation to the role that had been done by a few people at that point? 
Yeah, I think I was like the fourth lion or something. And of course, it was originated uh, by Mr. Ted Ross, who was amazing and wonderful and had won a Tony Award. And um, what they asked for me when I went in, Jeffrey Holder, who also was a mentor and a wonderful friend, said to me, we want you to do your own thing. The role had been done and had been done by, like you said, two or three other people by that point. And I think they needed something to refresh, um, to perk it up. And they said, what would you do? How would you do? What would you? And they sort of left me. Of course, I had to find, I had to follow the uh, physical tract of the show, if you will, to match up with the production as it was running. But in terms of interpretation, they let me do a bit more of my own take on it, which in the end, I think ended up being pretty much what it had always been. But I had a few things that were different and they allowed me to do a few different things uh, um, that they inspired me to do and so forth and Jeffrey I'll never get the walk I had to the lion strut you know and when he came in to work with me he says just follow me come on I want you to walk around the stage with me and we just walked around the stage doing this tipping he called it I want you to tip I want you to tip get on the balls of your feet and walk it's like you're wearing the most expensive high heels they ever made in Paris <laughs> I was like oh okay and uh he sort of loosened me up because I hadn't really, the whiz was scary because it was so hip, so now and right on the money. And I was a pretty traditional kind of person at the time. And he allowed me to loosen myself up and so forth. Um, but they did give me a little leeway, which was great to come into a show that was well-established and a huge hit. Because generally with a big hit show like that, they really keep you very much in, in line with what the show had been because it's a proven success. Uh, and like I said, in the end, I don't think the parameters changed, but the interior for what I was doing was allowed to be a little more different. Yeah. Yeah. And as you were starting out on Broadway, how did you sort of find your niche in terms of the kinds of characters that you would be playing and all of that? Well, to be honest with you, you take what comes along. I can't claim any great plan, <laughs> you know. I mean, again, Guys and Dolls, and Pearly, there were eight of us six or eight of us out of Pearly who ended up in Guys and Dolls, including Robert Guillaume, who was Reverend Pearly in Pearly and ended up being Nathan Detroit, Norma Donaldson, who was Aunt Missy in Pearly and ended up being Adelaide. So there was a core group of us uh, from Pearly that ended up in Guys and Dolls. So it was kind of a transference. The company manager was the same. I think that had a lot to do with it. Um, so, you know, I was happy to get the job, as I said, you know. Uh, with The Wiz, you've heard now the story of how that happened. After The Wiz, Amos Behaven was the same thing. I'd left The Wiz and I was um, sort of recuperating my knees and things from crawling on the floor. And they put out that they wanted to do a Fats Waller review at the Manhattan Theater Club, which was an off-Broadway, off-off really, but off-Broadway theater on the east side of Manhattan at the time. And I thought, well, you know, I was a little spoiled that I had been, only been on Broadway, you know, and this is going to be off Broadway. What was that about, you know? And uh, but they said they were looking for a guy similar to the guy, if they, you know, who was in Guys and Dolls. Well, you know, I thought, well, that's that, that's like an engraved invitation. So I went over and auditioned and so on and so forth. And of course, obviously, they hired me. But um, that was an audition situation, as was, you know, as we go down the road cats and so forth, other things. There's other stories. But most of the time, the roles and the choices came to me. Yeah. 
you know, there weren't things out there that I really was like, I'm going to get that. I'm going to go in and I'm going to get that. They sort of came to me as, as, as a possibility, as an opportunity. And then I tried to measure up to it. You know, there's a saying that goes, when opportunity meets preparation, you have success. And I, the opportunities came and I prepared or was prepared. And I think the two things together is what created my actually doing the parts so it wasn't like i had some people have career goals i have to this this kind of role by this age and i have to do this after that but it really wasn't like that for me i just followed what came on order on offer rather so i can't say there was some magical component to how i went through the shows it was just a matter of what came up and so going on with ain't misbehaving what was it like to be working with richard Mulby jr and arthur ferias they were sort of developing it it was a very active uh, thing because we literally started with a stack of, at the time, mimeograph, not even copy, <laughs> mimeograph, mimeograph uh, uh, music, a fat swallow, just a big, huge stack. And we'd go through songs, they play songs with their recordings, we'd listen to them. And of course, it was about finding, to my knowledge, finding not only songs that would might make up a show, but they had to fit the four, five people. And the five of us were very unique. We were all supporting people who had been in all these other things. Of course, Andre DeShields and I had worked together in The Wiz. Nell Carter was well-known around town for her cabaret at different shows she had been in. Uh, Armelia McQueen was coming sort of new to the business at the time, um, our, myself. Uh, and our fifth character at that time was Irene Cara, who we all know later went on to fame. Fame in fame. Uh, but she was the, and Charlene Woodard replaced her on Broadway. But we were all very unique. So they had to find music sort of we could do that made sense for each of the characters. And I'm sure, you know, we weren't aware of how they were uh, cobbling some sort of story trajectory through the thing. Because people, you know, I, I, I'm, I, I've directed four productions of the show now. And I, when people say, oh, it's such a great review. I am always like, it's not a review. It's some other uh, morphed, uh, amorphic uh, a thing. It's not a review. We don't sit on stools and sing songs and then he wrote, which, which is what basically constitutes a review. The show has, because it was made, I call them vignettes. Every number had its own vignette and was staged that way. So certainly giving a great amount of credit to Arthur Fraria that he made every number have a story of its own, you know. Uh, like for find out what they like the two ladies meet each other on the street and it's already set up they're wearing hats and they look at each other you can tell they're old friends who might have known each other in different times and it's like oh hello you're looking well and she says well so are you and she's well thank you it's a little shady you know and then they she says um, um oh i met somebody really wealthy and that's why i have diamonds or whatever she says and then the other character says oh yes sweetheart i met a man too and mine's better and then they go in to find out what they like and how they, for instance my setup with your feet's too big i remember um they said we want you to sit at the table and you know you're talking to like it's just you're, you're, you're drinking and you're thinking about the woman you came with and i said okay okay you know because speech too big was a great song for fats well but he just sang it at the piano it wasn't a, a narrative number. and i said well if i'm going to do that can i have another chair i said i want the audience to imagine the woman that's sitting in the chair because i describe her in the song i said but there's nobody there at all then it's just kind of like doesn't really i said just put an empty chair there and let me sing to the empty chair and that's how it was actually ended up being staged. And, you know, Arthur gave me a few physical things. 
things, but they pretty much left each of us outside of choreography to create our own ideas because we were embodying, we weren't playing quote unquote written characters. We were bringing our own personalities and our own ancestry and sense of Harlem Renaissance to these songs as ourselves. I also tell people when I direct it, I've gotten a couple where they say, man, one, man, two, woman, one, two, three. I said, no, 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 no. That is Andre, Charlene, Nell, Amelia, and Ken. That's who you're playing. Now you bring your own personality to the table, but you're not playing man one and man two. Those characters are us. And I like to realize that that's our legacy. And that's why I stand up for it because it's not some generic that five people just did. Our personalities are what the show is. And no uh, uh, disparaging to, to Richard, but you can't teach five African-Americans to be African-American. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? You have to thank God he chose us. So there's that. Absolutely chose us. But we brought to it our own artistry. And the beauty of it is the collaborative was we were allowed, if you will, to do what we could do. Like I said, we were five character people. So we had a trunk full of stuff, you know, to do. And we were allowed to do it. You know, we weren't stopped. And the relationships came out of our personalities. When you put the five of us together, it was the same off stage as it was on stage. We were just five, you know, for lack of a better, five wacky kind of folks. But our personalities were so opposite and complementary that no matter where we were, we always had that balance, you know. And there were friends who would come and they'd be backstage and they'd say, you know, you all are funnier off stage. <laughs> you are on stage because it was just who we were with each other, you know. Uh, Murray Horowitz, I always like to credit because Murray is the jazz aficionado. Murray has a show, I think, still on NPR where he talks about jazz and plays music and he knows everything about jazz and his jazz era and jazz. His son is, is named Thomas, one of his oldest sons, I think his oldest son named after Fats, Thomas Fats Waller. And uh, so it was really Murray, I believe, who had the soul of it because he was the one who lived in the music and so forth. I think Richard brought to it a sense of, of, of show business and how to maybe bring it to the stage because we all know at that time, Richard was more known as a lyricist he really was. He had direct starting here, starting now. But I think he struck gold with a misbehaving because he got Arthur Faria, who was a brilliant uh, choreographer and visualist for the period. He knew the period extremely well. And he also had a background in Balinese and, and Eastern Asian dance, which I always like to tell people when we do the show, too, that they start, you know, they'll do things like this. I said, no, it's elbows are up and the hands are turned out which is a very Balinese dance position. But it also, weirdly enough, coincided with the way they did it in the period. People didn't clap, they didn't pop like this. They had the whole thing was here in the hand and sort of in here somewhere, which also, like I said, is very Balinese. But Arthur brought all of that signature stuff to the show. So when I do it, I try to make sure that they follow that uh, frame. Of the, of the choreography, yeah? So there was a lot of contributors to what made it what it was in the end. And I think it was a brilliant collaborative effort. Of course, needless to say, Luther Henderson, we started out off Broadway with someone else who was a younger guy and he was good, but Luther was of the period. He really knew those people. And when he came in and started playing, everything took off in another direction because he knew how to play the music to bring the authenticity to it. 
which was like having Fats Waller at the piano. So when you put all of those elements together, you had this magical thing happen, which was called Ain't Misbehaving. Because the show was so suited to the individual personalities, how did you sort of feel about the change between Irene Cara and Charlene Woodard? And well, I mean, it was basically uh, the same process. They were nothing alike as far as who they are as women. And of course, that was the element of the show. You brought your personality. So what we had to do for the Broadway run take was we had to open up the door from the four of us and let another personality in. Interestingly, it served the same purpose because the, 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 the space for that actress was the same. Irene was very Lena Horne and very sort of, uh, how would you say? Well, very Lena Horne. The difference was, and I think this was key, was that Irene is Cuban, Puerto Rican. And she's not African-American, she's Cuban, Puerto Rican. And her background was, was very Latinx, I guess you call it now, but it was very Hispanic, if you will. And her sense of history through that period was not African-American. It was through Cuba and Puerto Rico. And that was where she really, her mindset was, in a sense. So her things she brought to the table as creative were not the same as us. So while she was wonderful, it just didn't quite match up to the same way the rest of us were exploring the period and the things and so forth. Uh, so I say that because, you know, people wonder why Irene Cara, my gosh, she was amazing. And she was, but there was that difference. And she was a good deal younger than the rest of us. So, and we seemed older than we were, you know, I was 20 or five, something like that. And everybody was in a range of that within a few years. And Irene was like 18 or something, you know? So it just was a different balance. Okay, so Charlene came into the show and she's, you know, completely effervescent. And she had this public, and Charlene's a graduate of Goodman Drama School. So she approached, as she always calls it, her lady. She approached her lady as an actress. She created this woman again, out of her personality and out of the, uh, all those women from that period, you know, a little Dorothy Dandridge in her cotton club days, a little lot of the, a lot of the ladies that uh, we were all, and men that we were all able to watch videos of. And she created this woman. What was great for her and Broadway was they added the number Haya Baby for she and Andre. So it gave her a signature number to do her own thing, which hadn't been off Broadway. And it was a big dance number and it sort of gave her a chance to act and you know the whole thing with the purse, which is again brilliant choreography and staging from Arthur Faria. So it gave her a way to really inject her personality into the show uh, with the new number. And of course, Keeping Out of Mischief was already there and things like that. So um, I forgot your question now, I've talked so far into it. But at any rate, it was really amazing, the collaborative. You had said about Irene and, and how was it? Uh, I would say for Broadway, it was the spike, the spark that we needed. Yeah. And by the time, just as I like to say this for Irene, by the time the show was slightly after it opened and we were doing, the movie Fame came out. And there was this huge billboard down at Times Square at the end of, of the street where the theater was, the Long Acre. And there it was. They were all, you know, Fame. They were around the piano. And there was Irene who still had a bit of her pose for Rainbow's Fame, and, but she was now in the movie Fame, and of course we know the rest of that story. So it balanced out. She didn't suffer for not doing it on Broadway, needless to say. Yeah. yeah. 
And so what would it be like to do with subsequent cast members who are not the original? originals? Yeah. Well, it was always the same because it was organic. I mean, the, the skeleton was there, as I said. They weren't playing different. They had to do what needed to be done, like I said about The Wiz. You had to follow the track, but each person had to have a strong personality or it wouldn't work. They had to have a similar personality to the person who originated or the chemistry wouldn't be the same, right? So um, that was, to me, some of the magic of it is, is getting to work with subsequent people. I use the Nell Carter role, uh, Avery Summers, So Walker, Terry White, Judy Gibson, uh, all these women that came in behind Nell, they each were different and they each had something different to bring, but they had one element that kept them in that same space. There was something, but, and the ones who didn't have it as much didn't work as well. The ones who had more of the same element worked better, but they all were wonderful, but they all were different. And I think it was pretty much the same. And when they did the first national, God bless them all, but they literally cloned us. I mean, Nell Carter was so much, we're being cloned, we're being cloned. And I think it was because they were not sure what the show would be unless they duplicated the people that were there on the stage, because it was us. They couldn't say, let's start all over from scratch. I heard stories of people who didn't want to do what we did. They wanted to do their own thing. And it was like, but that then isn't the show. The show now is this. So you have to do what they did or it's a different show. You can do your own way of doing it, but you can't come in and do something completely different because then you don't know what you have. You're starting from scratch. And there were people that were able to embrace that more than others. But it was the same thing, like I said, with The Wiz for me. Each person that came in, I remember when Debbie Allen came into the show to replace Charlene, uh, she and Alan Weeks, they both play Charlene and Andre. And Debbie, as we all now know, is a force to reckon with, you know. But it was the same kind of energy that was needed in that space. It was somebody who needed to come in and bring it in and bring it, you know, as we say. Uh, and she did. And she was wonderful. But she really wasn't like Charlene at all. It was a completely different kind of woman. But it still feel, filled the same uh, artistic space. So it was great doing with other people, some less successful, <laughs> you know, there were a couple of ladies who came in who I think a lot of people didn't realize how hard the show was. I mean, we sang 33 songs, give or take, you know, minus solos and things. And uh, it was very physical. We had to move. Luckily, we were some of us were big people who moved well. We weren't people who couldn't dance. And a lot of people who were fit the size image thing came in and they couldn't do the physical show. They just would pass out. They were missing shows. And then within a week or three, they were gone because they couldn't keep up. No offense to them. Not an easy show. When I've directed it, there was a company I directed down in Long Beach. And a lot of them had done it, right? And I said, and they were kind of doing some sort of version of it in the rehearsal. I thought, well, that's not really what this is. I don't know where you learn that, but that's not. And one day we were doing Join Us Jumping and they had worked on it and they were doing it. I said, okay, today we're going to do it up to tempo. And I could see all of their eyes got so big. They thought they were doing it at tempo. I said, oh, no, 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 no. That's not a tempo. The show tempo is. They thought, oh, my God. I said, okay, let's go. A five, six, a five, six, seven, eight. And they started, they did the number, and they all fell up against the wall at the end of the number. It was so funny. They were on the floor. They were like, oh, my God. I said, that's the show tempo. 
That's what makes it exciting. When you slow it down to accommodate to this, to that, it takes away the excitement. I said, so what you got to do, I ain't mad at you. I said, but you got to get your stamina up to that level so you can do it at that level. And they were like, I remember the one guy, Harrison White, he says, I've done this show four times. I've never done the show. I said, well, hello, good morning. You know, you want cream in your coffee? This is it. So, uh, but I always try to bring that to the people and tell them when they do it, now that you've done it with me, next time you do it, bring this with you. Eventually, because you've done the show three or four times, you'll probably get to direct it somewhere, or even if you're just doing it, always pass along what I'm giving you, because that's the element of the show that makes it what it is. I've seen people do all sorts of things with the show, which is really offensive, because it's like, it's not just some material to take and turn inside out. So that's why I always say it's not a review. And when people start doing the show and they're wearing white tails and top hats, you're like, that's not Bats Waller's world. That's sophisticated ladies. That's that's uh, Duke Ellington. So I try to, when I do it, to not just replicate the production necessarily, but to replicate the energy and the uh, the uh, purpose behind it. Always Fats Waller. Always, always, always. Yeah. How did the revival of the show come about about 10 years later, I believe? With the same. Well, it was such a big hit. I mean, it had closed, obviously, before then. And it ran a long time. I think it ran like four years on Broadway. Uh, you know, Nell was a big star in Hollywood by this point. She had given me a break and been running for a while. And I don't know the inception because I wasn't around for it. But I have a feeling she wanted to come back to the show as a star because she was now a name and so forth. And when we did it, they did say Nell Carter and they misbehave it with and then the rest of us, which was a little... <clears throat> a little hard for us to take. Well, because we were all equal the first time, right? But you couldn't deny that she was a big star and so forth. And um, I think that was really the reason. I mean, for them, it was only 10 years between. So, you know, when I think of it being a revival, it's like, well, it was almost like a continuance, you know, and, the, and we all came back. Now, of course, by then, we'd all done other things. I'd been in Cats and people had done television, all sorts of things. So we weren't the same five uh, Broadway, or not even Broadway, thespian veterans we were when we started. We were people who had gone on in their careers. And, you know, So we came back. I, mean, I think we did a good job with the revival, but we were not the same people. So it had a different feeling. And by them taking Nell and making her the star, it certainly made box office sense, but it took away from the ensemble of the five people. There was no way you could keep that and have someone build as the star. It just didn't go together. And I think none of us, the four of us, made any difference. I don't think she purposely made a difference, but she had, they added another number for her in the second act, you know, and it just was imbalanced then. The show was off balance. And it worked because people loved the show and the material, and it was the same five people. But the difference in having a star and four supporting people was not the same as five dynamite powerhouse people working as an ensemble. And I think that's made the difference in how. And when we left the show, I mean, we signed on to do it, I think, six months or something like that. And when myself and Amelia left, Andre stayed, I think Charlene left, um, Nell left, it didn't work because it just kind of fell apart. You know, the people who came in to support, to uh, replace the second time around, they were going like they did with Nell. They were trying to plug in stars to keep it, you know, uh, box office. I think Patty Austin went into it to do the Armelia role, not the Nell role. 
And Patty's a great singer. She's probably one of the best singers around, but she's a recording artist, you know, and within a week, her voice was gone. You know, we were like strong, like bull, we, you know, Broadway voices. And she was out of there in a week. She couldn't do it anymore. And I think a lot of people suffered that way in the revival. They just kind of couldn't quite because they kept trying to plug in name people. And eventually it, it just didn't run anymore. You know, I think it's due for a revival. I don't know. You know, it's a different show. It's a different time, I should say, than certainly the original, which is 1978, or the revival, which was 88. But people, the show has been continually done ever since it started. It's never not done somewhere because it's the perfect small show that people can do. Um, but I think it's going to be interesting because, in my opinion, I hope I get to direct it if Richard doesn't. Because I think to with, to to keep what was important from the original and allow five people to bring their personalities is the key. Not to just try to imitate the five originals, but to use the skeleton. Like I tell my companies, you are now going to be built on the skeleton of what we were. You have to add the muscle, you have to add the skin, you have to add the this, but you're built on the skeleton of what it was originally. And I think that's the important thing. I think the types are important because there's a balance between the ladies and there's a thing with the men, they have to have a certain kind of rapport. So all of those things going back to the original people are important to keep. But I think there's people out there now who could bring personality and still be reminiscent of the original and have it work. But it has to be done delicately, delicately. <laughs> yeah. And I hope I get to do it. There you go. Yes. Yes. Well, I'd love to move on next to Cats, which was. Yes. And how did that, a, a very different, obviously, from Rate Misbehaving, and how did that. Yeah. Well, I had done, uh, I forget what all had gone on. I think we had done the NBC TV special of Ain't Misbehaving by that point. We've been to Paris with the show, I believe. I get the trajectory a little weird now. but um, And Cats was a big hit in London, as you know, before it came to Broadway. And they were saying it was coming to New York and they were bringing it over. And I was under the understanding that Cats was like a dance show for dancers. I did not know the show, really. And I got the album. To tell you the inception of me getting to it, I went to the closing performance of Ain't Misbehaving on Broadway. I wasn't in it. It was a different cast. But I was at the closing performance, and Bernard Jacobs of the Schubert Organization, who was one of the heads of the Schubert Organization, the late Bernard Jacobs, said to me, Kenny, I think there's a part in Cats for you. <laughs> and I said, it, really? I thought it was a dance. He goes, no, there's an old grandfather kind of cat. <laughs> said it to me. He says, and I think you'd be perfect have they not brought you in because they were already auditioning people i said no nobody's ever called me about it i don't know anything about it he said uh that's what i thought he says well i'm gonna have them call you in and blah blah so we then went to la to film ain't misbehaving for nbc because i was rehearsing the song the addressing of cats in my uh hotel room because when I went back, I was going to have the audition. I remember Amelia was in the room next door and she'd see me at the studio and she'd say, very nice, Paige. That high note needs a little work. I said, what do you mean? I beg your pardon. She's like, I can hear you in the shower. <laughs> I can hear you in the shower working on the song. So I went back and it was the end of the audition process. They had been auditioning for six months and it was constantly in the newspapers of all the people that were coming in and a lot of Hollywood people because Grisabella was, of course, obviously the key role that people wanted and Deuteronomy because it was a, a, an actor's role. 
you had to sing, needless to say, but you had to be an actor to really pull it off. And there were people like Robert Conrad, they kept saying, from Jake and the Fat Man. Robert Conrad is in the lead to play Deuteronomy in the in Cats, the Broadway version of Cats. And then they'd have somebody else's name in it. And this went on and on and on and on. So we got to the end of six months. By this time, all the machinery had gone on. And they brought me in the last week of the six months, okay? I came in on a Monday, I sang, they had me come back at the weekend to sing again and do a monologue. I went away for the weekend, I came back into town and they called me Monday morning and said, we'd like you to play Old Deuteronomy Cats. And that's the short version, right? Um, but it really was that, for some people they had been waiting, like Betty Buckley, if I recall, was the first person they saw and the last person they saw. So for her, it was a six month waiting period to find out if she was gonna be in the show. For me, it was a week. What do I, you know, complain never, you know, I didn't have to go through the anguish. And a lot of people did the dancers, some of the more dancer roles, they auditioned four and five times and they kept cutting and adding and cutting and adding. And then they'd be called back to be paired with two other people and three other people. And they sort of built the show from what I understand by having people come back and each time they'd have more of the people they wanted so that by the end, they actually sort of had the cast, the dancing cast pretty much. And they had them go through the last audition and basically they could see their company minus myself and Betty, or Deuteronomy and Grizabella and maybe a couple of other roles. Um, and boom, they announced the cast. And they were, but it had leaked out, who knows how, that it leaked out like the week end so like a week before, I guess the Monday, the earlier that week, it came out in the paper that Ken Page is in hot contention. They still talk like Walter Winchell. You know, Ken Page is in hot contention for the role of Deuteronomy. Rumor has it it's between he and uh, Robert Conrad. The heat is on, things like that. And they were saying Liza was going to play Grizabella. Cher was going to play Grizabella. That Betty Buckley was in the running for Grizabella. There were all these other women like Kim Criswell, who eventually did it in Los Angeles, who were all in the mix. And... Um, so they announced on Monday, they called and they said, we're offering you the role and so forth. And by the middle of that week, agents had talked and different things had gone on. And they announced the cast like Thursday of the following week. And But it had been six months of auditions and big publicity stuff and everything because everybody wanted to be in it. It was, a, it was an event. It wasn't just a show. And how did you sort of find the process as an actor of creating the character of a cat and that character in particular? Ah. Uh, it was amazing. We did 90-minute classes every morning for movement with Jillian Lynn, my dear, sweet Jillian, who I love. She, uh, we had 90-minute movement classes. And then after that, we would have uh, 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 sort of acting improv classes with Trevor. And then we'd, of course, have music rehearsals with Stanley Lebowski. I mean, it was like going to, um, as the Brits would do, it was like going to an academy for nine weeks we rehearsed. I think it was nine weeks, which was extraordinary also. But it was like going to this, it was like going to cat school. That's what I <laughs> Because we not only were trained physically, we were trained as actors to be responsive. Then the combination of the acting and the physicality were put together to give us the, the uh, physicalization of felinity and cats and so forth. We were each told to observe a cat, pick one, find one, get one, whatever you need, and really observe them and see what qualities you could find that matched your character in the show. 
But Deuteronomy, it was particular because being the Jellicoe leader, not only did you have to be feline, but you also had to be uh, majestic because he was supposed to be a little, you know, sort of from another realm of somewhere and also extremely paternal. So there were all these elements that had to come into the characterization that had to be then filtered through being feline. But they had to be these things that were about the character as written by T.S. Eliot, that he was, as he's described in the song of Deuteronomy, the poem. Uh, he's lived nine lives, uh, uh, some you would say 99, and his numerous progeny prosper and thrive, and the village is proud of him in his decline as he sits on the vicarage wall and so on and so forth. So it was very well described who Deuteronomy was supposed to be. For me, at 27, <laughs> I had to act which was the fun for me because it wasn't just like go in and just put on a cat suit and run around. None of us did that. We all had to embody these characters, not only from an acting perspective, but from a physical movement perspective. And we did exercises that, you know, things you wouldn't even, there were times when we would have an hour or two where we were in a room in silence, just being the physical cat, you know, and there would be things Trevor would throw a pan and a stick and a ball and a thing and all these different objects in the room. And we had to relate to them as cats. So you would look over to the side of the room and you see two cats batting a ball around or somebody was laying over stretching and somebody else was playing with a piece of string. And But by the time you got all of that put together and then applied it to the actual material, we were all submerged in the mental, physical process of being feline, you know, and that's, uh, I think, what made it authentic to what it was supposed to be. At what point in the process did you know that Cats was going to be the giant hit that it was? Well, you know, we knew right away because, again, as I said, it had been a big hit in London. And as soon as the tickets went on sale in the United States, we I remember uh, somewhere in the process nearer to opening, I guess, Trevor Nunn sat us, we were all sitting down to one of our processes. And he said, just so that you all could free your minds, he said, we have a $6 million advance, which at the time was, it's a lot now, but it was even more in 1982, three. He said, so free your minds of the fact whether the show is going to run or not, which is always a big thing when a Broadway show opens. Will we close opening night? Will the critics kill us? Will this? The show was not going to close. It had a $6 million advance, which meant concentrate on your work, do the thing, have a great time, stay in your zone about it because you don't have to worry whether it's going to run or not. We are going to run. And that was a huge gift that, you know, you, we, I mean, we were happy, but you didn't realize until later that to have, to know that the show was, we run for years, $6 million is years of advance. It's not a year. And it meant uh, relax. you got a job. You don't have a show. You have a job. And if I could have stayed in it longer, it was almost like an annuity. You know I mean? If I could have stayed in, I did it for three years, I think more or less. If I had stayed in the show five or six years, I could have just retired. Not that I would have or it was ever in my mind to do so. But, you know, five years, very few people get to do a show for five or six years on Broadway. That means you have a check, which is rare for actors, every week for six years, which is rare. And, you know, people bought homes and things and things like that. But that's very rare that that happens on Broadway. 
but we had that kind of uh, surety, which was great. And what were your interactions like with Andrew Lloyd Webber? And was he around a lot? Or? Oh, he was there all the time. I mean, again, remember, this was being revised for Broadway. It wasn't just a copy of London. There were numbers added and things taken away and things were trimmed and so on and so forth. So he was there all the time. You know, I remember one particular incident I had, which was <laughs> sort of scary. Um, in London, Deuteronomy did Bustopher and Deuteronomy. played Most of the characters played more than one. But in London, Deuteronomy played Bustopher and Deuteronomy. And in Broadway, they put they gave Bustopher to uh, the character who did Gus. And I only did Deuteronomy. But they didn't change the music. So the character that was doing Bustopher was actually singing in the same key and in the same vocal range as Deuteronomy. Uh, and I thought, oh, that's not good for me. You know, I mean, somebody's going to be out there before me sounding like me. And then I come on. It's like, well, you're a copy of the first guy, you know. And I told Stanley Lebowski, I said, Stanley, I just think that's just, is there anything we can do? I mean, I know the music is written, but I explained it logistically that that was the same actor originally so obviously the sound was the same but now it's two different actors and i don't can we do something so that i and stephen hannon who's doing it don't sound like the same person he said that's a good point it's a legitimate point he says i'm gonna have andrew come in and you tell him <laughs> i thought me? oh my god why don't you tell so he did have him come in and i gathered my strength because i thought this could be it he could say how dare you get out you know and i explained it as i felt it and it was true to me and he says you know you're quite right he said we never really thought about that we've redevised redivided the roads and so forth he said so let's try this now i'd work because i wasn't a baritone bass you know by trade at that time and deuteronomy had very low notes and i had to work on it uh, with a voice coach to be able to really and he said you have these notes you just have never used them because you've always singing high so when he went to the piano, he says, well, let's see. And he played with the key a bit for dressing up the cats. And he says, oh, let's let's just try it here. Let's try it here. And it went from you've heard of several to you've heard of several. And I thought, oh, my God, it's lower. And I was just, you know, able to do it. And he says, we sang through it. And he says, I think that's quite right. Quite right. Thank you. Thank you, he said. I was like, oh, my God, thank you. And he said, you, it's, I remember the statement I always remember. Is he said, it's, it's quite Father Christmas now, isn't it? It was quite Father Christmas. I said, Man, well, yeah, right. I hope I can sing it. It's my Father Christmas. And he did change it, and it stayed that way forever afterward. And there was a difference when we came back to the rehearsal again, and we rehearsed the dressing of cats. They explained to the ensemble who had learned their parts that the key had been changed. And just to sing, let's sing through it and see if you can find it from where we start. And if we need to work on it, we will. And if not, we'll just go with it. And of course, you had very well-trained people. So they were able to just sort of by ear go to the next. It was only lowered like a half step or something like that. But it did make the difference. We no longer sounded the same. And it made a, a big difference. So Andrew was always around and receptive i think things like that happened with other people some in some different ways but that's something i always credit him with being open and generous about and it made a huge difference and i do think as the show went on it made a specific for the rest of the cast replacing and other companies that would not have been there so i like to take my little credit that i <laughs> that i helped the deuteronomies in the future to have a, a different voicing <laughs> 
but he was very responsive, you know, and uh, wonderful to work with. He really was. You could see he was, he's brilliantly creative, brilliantly creative. And Jillian told me, she said, he hears music all the time. It's like a savant. He hears music all the time. It's like he has to quiet it in his head because he hears music all the time. It's a matter of just, if it's usable or it's just the running thing in his mind. But um, um, very fortunate to work with him, I think. It was, of course, also an ensemble cast, although a much bigger one than A Misbehaven. And what was your sort of relationship like with the other members of the cast, like Terrence Mann and Donna King? Well, it was great because, yeah, Terrence Mann, Betty Buckley, Harry Groner, uh, Bob Hoshaw. I mean, all these amazing, wonderful people are so many that have gone on. Renee Clemente, Renee Ceballos, uh, I could go on names, but anyway, Timmy Scott, Tim Scott. Uh, it was great because we were put, like, like I said, in an academy. So we were all students together. You know, we learned the show as students of the show. We weren't treated like a lot. It wasn't done very much like a Broadway show that we had all known, where the stars are the stars and the ensembles over here. And this way. We were all together, not only from a sense of ensemble, but we learned it together. Our exercises, acting exercises, were very, uh, uh, I guess in a way you'd call them intramural, or they were very ensemble in an acting sense. So we all were very much about the ensemble. And if you recall the beginning of the show, it's the tribe, we're all together. And there are no characters yet, everybody's just cats. So we all started out at equal, and then as the show progresses, everybody becomes the different characters as it goes along. So I don't think, as it usually is the case, unfortunately or fortunately, you know, on Broadway, when the award season comes around, that's generally when the division starts. And with Cats, and not, a, not necessarily between people, but it's just divided. When Cats, uh, the Tony Award nominations and Drama Desk and all the different things came around, it's pretty hard when you're in an ensemble piece to keep that feeling when people are being singled out. Uh, and it's different afterwards and it never is quite the same. So the time we had opening in October, all the way up until late, April when the nominations came out, something like that was golden because we really were an ensemble and people had a great time. We all knew Grisabella was singing memory. And of course that was the showstopper. So that was no issue for anybody, but everybody did their bit, you know, and everybody had a moment, you know, we all had our moment and it was fine. And of course, then the Tony Award nominations come out and then you're basically told you're worthy. You're not, you're worthy. You're not, which isn't true, but it feels true. You know, um, and afterwards, it's it's kind of not the same. You can't it just kind of can't be, you know, uh, but that's the price you pay uh, for the progress of a show. Uh, the show won, of course, as you know, many awards and people in the show. Betty won the Tony and a couple, few people were nominated. But it really changes after that. It takes two or three or four months after the awards. It starts to wear off again because you get, I remember I went on, being the, being the grandfather of the group, the night before the Tony Award nominations, I went on the, on the PA system and I said, well, I know everybody's like sitting on pins and needles wondering who's going to be nominated. I said, but one thing I'm going to say, two things. I said, and I'm only saying it because I'm probably the one who's been around, you know, at that point in the most shows. Um, we will be the same people tomorrow night that we are tonight. We will have to do the same show, no matter who is or isn't nominated. We'll all have to go out there and we'll have to do Cats. 
So try to remember that whether you are or if you're not nominated, and I was in the group too, if you're not nominated, don't let it diminish you. If you are nominated, don't think you're better than you were the night before. <laughs> you just have been told that you're, you know, and I close with, and people, I could hear the whole theater laughing. I said, and remember, wherever you go, there you are. You know, <laughs> but I think it gave everybody, and I pat myself on the back, it gave everybody an exhalation because everybody was so nervous and you had that many people and so many wonderful people, anybody could have been nominated. And it let everybody go, oh, okay, all right, whatever. And then they came out and you did what you did. But just having, I think, in the back of your mind, that we got to do the same show tonight that we did before we knew who was nominated. I had been through it, so I knew that to be so, right? Um, and of course, like I said, maybe three or four months after all that, everything sort of settles down again. Eventually, maybe five months after that replacement started, and it saw it, it's a constant change from uh, award season on, I would say. Yeah. yeah. And, and when did you ultimately decide to leave the show? Uh, I'd been in the show, I think, just slightly over or under two years, and there were a lot of replacements coming in at that point, by that point, which is usual, not unusual at all. But Cats is a very organic show, and because we had learned it together, and we were all dependent on the stories we were telling each other on stage, I found progressively the show was becoming... And not that it, the audience would have known necessarily, but it was becoming less and less um, ensemble in, in, the, in the true sense. People were being plugged into the show that were having rehearsals and learning steps and learning where they had to go. And they were on stage. They didn't have the process of going through all the things I talked about of playing cats and learning this from each other and feeling and doing. They would just put it to the show like a Broadway show. This is your role. This is what you do. You go here, you go there, you sing this, you sing that, and there you go. That's it. And for me, being in the role I was in, I really depended on the relationships with all the other cats to keep my role visible because, um, you know, I didn't have that much to do, but I had a lot to do in relationship to people which played visually to the audience. So, you know, I would reach over here for a moment that had been there and nobody was there anymore. <laughs> you know, they were gone. And I thought, well, you can learn new things. But I realized they hadn't been given that material or that information. And I thought to myself, well, you know, maybe it's time for you to move on because the show is going to morph and it's going to change and that's what happens and that's fine. But if it's feeling uncomfortable or it's feeling like um, you're not able to do the role you do because of the change, outside of yourself then it's time for you to move on you know and that was the motivation and then at the same time I decided I was going to move to California and try out film and television and so forth but the motivation really was that the show was changing and I understood again the idea that change is, is always going to happen with the Broadway show uh, it may be the same show to the audience visually but internally when new people come in it's new energy in a normal show where you say the lines, you sing the songs, that's sort of not such a big deal like The Wiz. But in a show like Cats that was so organic and a lot of the thread of story was between the relationships, it was really difficult to keep that going. It was almost like when they did the, the uh, L.A. company, I thought maybe I'll get to go to L.A. and I'll do it out there. But they rightly decided 
to have a whole new company. So they too could have that same experience of, of putting the show together from scratch with each other. And a very dear friend of mine, George Anthony Bell, played Deuteronomy out there. And I loved him and I certainly recommended him to them. Once I knew I wasn't going, <laughs> I said, well, okay. You know, uh, but he was wonderful at the show. I got to see opening night out there. Uh, but it was a whole new group of people, wonderful people, but they had their own energy, their own relationships and all the other stuff. And they did that consequently until it reached a point where there were companies out there everywhere and they started intermixing people. And people from the National would come into Broadway and people from Broadway would go. On. So, uh, which is when a show is a hit, that's what really happens down the line. So that's why I left uh, when I did. And what was it like to do the movie, which I believe was a few years after the? After well, that? actually, it was 97, and I left the show in 86, maybe, something like that. So it was a good, good, good bit of time. And I like to make sure so we know the filmed stage version, because there is a movie, right? Um, the film stage, don't laugh, don't laugh. There is a, 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 we did the film stage version in London at the Adelphi Theater. And uh, it was amazing because, I mean, the cast was literally handpicked. You know, Gillian Lynn was there. Trevor wasn't part of that one, uh, although he was all over it, of course, because we'd all been taught by Trevor. Not Trevor Dunn. But Gillian was the director, stage director for that production. And then they had a film director uh, who did the filming part thing, you know, whatever. And um, everybody was handpicked because by this point, 10 years later at least, there were companies from Japan and Australia and Broadway and London and everywhere, national companies. There were kajillions of cats to pick from. And Jillian had worked on all of those companies. She was very hands-on with the show always. And she literally handpicked who she wanted to be the definitive version on film. And I was thrilled and moved beyond belief that she chose me. Because, I mean, there were a lot of Deuteronomies to pick from. There was uh, Brian Blessed, who was the original one in London. There were all of these people to pick from. And uh, my agent called. He says, well, they're doing a, they're filming cats. And, rah, rah, rah. and Jillian was his client also, which didn't hurt, I guess. But he says, and Jillian said that she wants you to do it. And it was like one of those things kind of, you know, like, again, like you see it in a biopic where, you mean I don't have to audition or I don't have to prove anything? He said, no, Jillian wants you to do it. Andrew's already approved you and they want to offer you the part. So when we got to, when I got to London, um, again, it was a very interesting thing because you had this group of people, all of whom who had done Cats somewhere. There was a small sort of clack of them who were from London who had done it on, on, uh, in, on the West End, who, a couple who were even still in it, uh, uh, Susie McKenna, who played uh, Jenny Annie Dots was in the show at that time on, on West End and so forth. And um, so we all knew the show. We all knew, you know, and because the show had been recreated by Trevor and Jillian, it wasn't a different show that we all knew. We all knew the same show. It was a matter of bringing us together as a company. <clears throat> and I remember Jillian said, um, now darling, I love Jillian, she says, I want you to come in a bit later. I don't want you to come in right at the beginning. She says, we have to shortcut. We don't have time to do the whole organic bit. She says, plus we've all already done that, haven't we? I said, yes, yes, we have. She says, but I want you to come in as you would in the show. And I want daddy to arrive. 
and everybody was working. They'd been rehearsing like a week and a half or two weeks, maybe even. She says, but when you come, I want it to be just like it is in the show where it's, they know you're going to be there and they're all waiting on you. And she says, and darling, they'll be able to have that, that moment to carry into the show. So we want to do that. So the first day we met up at her house, had tea and talked and everything. And then we drove over to the rehearsal hall out to clap up together. And uh, she had me wait in the hallway, which was so, it was very exciting. And she went into the room and she said, good morning, darlings. And everybody was, oh, chilly, hello, darling, blah, blah, blah. She says, well, daddy has arrived. And they were like, oh, yay. You know? And she says, and may I introduce you, all of you who don't know, because we had two Americans there, although I hadn't worked with them. They were from the Broadway company, Michael Gruber and uh, uh, Jacob Brennan. And she opened the door and I walked in and we all started to cry. We all were filled with tears because it literally was the moment from the show brought to real life. You know, and I stood there and I thought, well, what would I do? You don't go, hello, my name is Ken. Hi, hi, how are you, Judy? But Bob, hi, hi. And I just threw my arms open and they all ran and we hugged and everything. And it was one of those moments where I got exactly what she was doing as a director. She made it real. We all bonded immediately. And I think uh, maybe giving myself too much credit, but she knew that my spirit would be open to them. And that they could come to me the way they do at the show. And it would be immediate. And we could go on from there. And we all hugged and we cried. And people just, hello, how are you? And then they introduced themselves individually. But by then, we were already a company, you see. And, um, and I remember Julie said, all right, darlings, we've welcomed Daddy. Now let's get back to work. And I went and sat on the thing that was there for the tire. And we rehearsed. You know, we found little bits where people had to adjust little things from the different companies they were in. But I always think, and it touches me deeply, that that filmed version, in my opinion, with all deference to the film, is the definitive version of Cats because it's there forever. And it was Jillian's work put on film along with whatever we'd all got Trevor, you know, originally. And it's there forever. And we were handpicked. And it will always stand as a testament to what Cats really was in its inception and its intention. And to be there in that and cherry on the cake for me, and I love my Betty Buckley, always did, always will, was that I got to do it with Elaine Page, who was the original Grisabella, you know. And that was like this pairing that was, they called us the pages, which I thought was very funny. They'd say, oh, well, do we need the pages for the rest of the day or can they go? And she'd look and say, oh, darling, we're married now, you know. <laughs> I said, well, we're the pages, P-A-I-G-E, P-A-G-E. And, um, but doing it with her was very special because she brought the original. There was one other, Sarah Jane Tanner, who was the original uh, Jelly Laura. She was with us as well, and she had been in the original one. And Femi Taylor, who was one of the dancer cats, Exotica, she was from the original cast. And it was very interesting when she came in because she didn't start out with us. They brought her in. And I guess it was something to do with the original production. She and Jillian had this sort of silent language because she was telling her what she wanted her to do, but they never spoke. She would walk her over to a spot and she'd sort of put her hand out and she'd do something like this. And Femi would go, <laughs> And then they'd walk over to the tire boot and she'd say, and darling, just, mm. and she'd say, ah, yes, yes. 
what's going on? No. And then we would rehearse it. All of a sudden, Femi was doing all of this stuff that they knew what they were doing, you know, and she was gorgeous. And she's, Af- well, she's not African-American. She's actually African-British, I guess you'd say. Beautiful, beautiful woman. She added this ex- exotica, you know, to, to the company. And they gave her a lot of camera play, which made her more part of it than her actual physical presence was. And uh, so it was just, it was a glorious experience. I love London. It was my second time being there working and I'd love to do something there again before I'm too old. And, um, but doing Cats there was a very, because that was where it was born, you know. So to have that feeling of London and all the people who were British and from the London production and so forth. Uh, there was one girl from Belgium and there were all kinds of, it was very, very special. And it's there forever, now and forever. Yeah. And so I'd love to talk about some of your screen work, which I know you were mentioning that you did after this, and specifically uh, Dream Girls and Torch Song Trilogy mm. as two of the great things that you did. Well, how wonderful to get to recreate, again, things that were born on Broadway. So I was very aware of that Dream Girls was one of my favorite, favorite, favorite shows. And um, when the audition came around, it, it was kind of like I knew what the character was. And in the, in the show... Uh, you don't really see a lot of him. It's more about Marty, the manager, and the man who owns the club. When she comes in to sing I'm Changing, it's sort of a smaller part, but they flipped it. Marty was, of course, throughout the movie. That was Danny Glover. But they gave the club owner more to do. Sort of a cameo, if you will. And uh, make a long story short, I mean, the film was a big deal. Neither, you know, obviously they were finally doing Dream Girls and Beyonce was going to be in it, all these things. And um, I was happy that I got cast as the club owner because, <laughs> to be honest with you, she had to sing the song because it was pivotal to the plot. And I thought, I won't be cut out because <laughs> she has to sing the song and she has to sing it for the club owner. And that means I'll be in the movie no matter what. Because sometimes, you know, editing happens. And as it was, there were two other scenes that I was to do that were edited before we, we didn't even film them. But the main scene that was important was there and I got to do. And they always tease me because I had this line where Marty would say, uh, oh, uh, uh, uh. we have my character's name, anyway, Washington. You, you've got to, you've got to, you've got to see her, you know? And I would say, Marty, I don't have the time, you know? And they told me later, they said that became their catchphrase in editing. When somebody would say, oh, but we have to go back and do that scene again. They go, hey, I don't have the time, <laughs> you know, which was fun to know. Um, but working on it was magic. It was magic. You know, I mean, I knew that, again, that's the thing about film and television. When you're doing something on film, you know it's going to be there forever. Yeah. You know, nobody's going to replace you or do anything like that. It's going to be there forever, just the way it is. So you do your best. And to be, I always liken Dream Girls like stormy weather back in its day. To have all of these wonderful African-American talents, Jamie Foxx, Beyonce, needless to say, Jennifer Hudson, Nikononi Rose, all the way down the line. Loretta Devine got to be in it, who was in the original Broadway. All these people in the film was like Stormy Weather was back then with Lena Horne and Cap Calloway and Fats Waller and so on and so forth. Um, uh, Bojangles, I'm just saying, Cap Calloway. Uh, all these wonderful, wonderful people. So to me, to get to be in that again was almost like, you know, and it was a perfect moment because uh, I didn't sing which was great. I was just get to act. And, uh, you know, I was told by a friend of mine when they did the screening at the Ziegfeld in New York that when I came on the screen, the audience applauded, which I, 
I can I can only imagine. I mean, I wasn't there, but I thought how lovely. But that was a Broadway group, you know. They were the Ziegfeld, of course, was in New York. So to be part of it in Dreamgirls was one of those projects that everybody loves and so forth. So that was great. Same thing with Torchland Trilogy. I'd seen the show three times, and when they uh, the agency said uh, I was in, living in L.A. at the time, and they said, "Well, there's a role in Torchland Trilogy. They want to see you for it." And I said. I've seen the show through time. There's no role in it for me. And they said, well, there is. Obviously, they want it. And they said, it's it's uh, Murray. It's Murray. They said, well, I think it's his best friend. But there's no best friend. And then they said, look, there's a character named Murray who's Arnold's best friend, and he's in the movie. You want to go in or not? And I thought about it. I would, oh, my God, Murray. He always calls Murray on the phone in the play. And it would be sometimes the punchline of the whole scene. Something would happen. He'd go to the phone and he'd dial and he'd go, Murray, blackout. You know? So he always talked to his friend Murray. And I thought, oh, that's Murray. Oh, nice, you know. And uh, I went in and read for Paul Bogart, the director and so forth. But I knew Harvey, not well, but I knew him because he the show was running while I was doing Cats. And Paul Joint, who was in the show with him, and I were good friends. And um, doing it was very interesting because, again, you know, I was not someone who had done drag before. And I was a little nervous about it. And, you know, to be frank with you, I was concerned, obviously not enough not to do it. But I was concerned because this, this is around 1986, something like that. And it was at a time when straight actors were not doing gay characters because it would influence how people saw you in your career, particularly African-Americans. Just did not happen, period. But I thought to myself, you know, this is a great piece of theater and it's being preserved on film and I want to do it, you know? And like I said, I was nervous about drag, mostly because I just know how it would look. You know, I was so nervous about doing it. And I thought, I don't care, you know, uh, a friend of mine who I love dearly, who's a known actor, told me, bury it when the movie was coming. He said, bury it as fast as you can. Get another job, do another role. And I thought, but why would I want to bury something that I'm so proud of doing? You know, Torchstone Trilogy is a great play and it said a great thing at a great time that needed to be said, you know. And I'm part of that. I don't want to bury it. I want to exalt it. Um, so I did it. And it was, again, one of those things where, you know, when you're in the middle of filming, you're thinking to yourself, first of all, get to work with Anne Bancroft, who I adored, 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 adored. Harvey, who I adored, adored, adored. Uh, Charles Pierce, who was the funniest man on earth. Truly, he was just, his act was always, I look at film uh, videos of him now and it still makes me laugh. Um, so it was another one of those charmed things where I was getting to create something that would be there forever with all of these amazing people. And already Charles is gone and Bancroft is gone. Uh, all the girls in the club, we call it other than myself and Harvey have all passed away. Um, Harriet Leiter, who played the club announcer, she's gone. So I look at it now and it's like a time capsule, not only of the play, but all the people that were around who were brave enough to do it to be in it, to be seen in this piece. And I didn't think about it as much as I have in retrospect that it was a brave move. Now, of course, everybody and their grandmother's father have done drag. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's a thing now, you know. But when we did it then, it was called a taboo. 
Now it's called, you know, like I said, everybody's done drag at some day. Like, let me be a drag. Let me be in, you know. Um, so I think of it now as we were forerunners to even do that on film. But it has influenced, I've been told by many people who show it to their parents still, who find that it's a great conduit to coming out, to uh, helping people understand who they are because it's expressed in the script. Um, and I'm very proud to be part of that forever. It'll always be there. When I'm mummy dust, it'll still be there and saying something to people, you know? So uh, that's towards Song Dream Girls. And I mean, I'm very fortunate to have been involved with it. And that leads me into asking you about Pride and all that comes with that. And of course, this episode will be used for Pride. Yes. And so I'd love to ask about your own journey in terms of coming out and being a gay actor in mm -hmm. Broadway and in Hollywood and what that's been like. Well, you know, I mean, coming out, it's the interesting thing is I have to think back. Did I ever come out? I think I was just sort of out. But again, I came through... Uh, again, being in an ensemble at the Muni, uh, in theater, where there wasn't really an onus on being gay. I mean, there were so many gay people around. It just was, it was almost like you were in a private club that included gay people. It wasn't that you were the outsider trying to get in. You were the core. You know, when you think about the composers and the writers and the directors and the costume designers and the set designers, the gay community was the heart, soul, and center of the theater simple so when i came into that i came into welcoming arms so i didn't have to come out i came in <laughs> you know what i mean and i can say though in the beginning like 1976 when i did guys and dolls i never tried to not be who i was i did just wasn't in my character and i wasn't raised that way i was raised to be honest about myself and um i think there's probably opportunities and inclusions and things like that early on that I wasn't allowed because I was openly gay, but I wasn't really as aware of it because I didn't really think about it. I just thought about what I was doing, which was plenty. You know, I was working on Broadway and doing a lot of wonderful things and not having to uh, compromise myself in any real way. Uh, when I moved to LA, of course, it was a different story. And um, interesting because I was established as, an, as a performer before I went there. But you go to LA and you can even have your Tony Award glued to the top of your head. And they're like, and you do what? It's like, well, I act as a Tony Award on my head. And they're like, oh, that's cute. Uh, have you done any film? You know, they don't care, you know. They just kind of didn't, at least at that time. I can't speak for now, but I don't think they care a lot now either. But, um, so you kind of have to start over and the idea of being openly gay when I went back, when I went to LA in 1984 was still taboo. Now they're openly gay actors who they're out there like Billy Porter and, and Chris Sieber who did the two dads or whatever it was with the kids. There are people who went to Hollywood and said, look, I'm an openly gay man or woman. You know, there's a lot of, you know, uh, I can't think of her name right now. It comes with comedian, stand-up comedian, uh, Wanda Sykes. People who are just like, look, this is who I am. Take me or leave me. That's it. That wasn't like that in 1986. Only that short time ago, it was completely different. Uh, so I found L.A. for me was a very challenging place for the 20 years off on that I lived there. Because I was me and I was closeted. And yet there was no space for that. You know, when you went into audition, 
they kind of, without trying to say it, basically said, look, make sure you don't act too gay or don't make any jokes or any allusions to the fact of who you are personally, leave that out. Well, what that creates is some of the things we've always heard about, which is people having dual personalities and living, you know, parallel lives and all this stuff, which is purely unhealthy. I mean, there's no two ways about it. If you're pretending to be one thing in your work and you're someone else in private, completely, I don't mean just the difference of being public and private, it's, it's got to make you nuts, you know? And I think it's... Um, it's very difficult to live a happy life, which to me, life is first, career is second. I learned that a long time ago. And if you're not happy in your life, how can you be productive truly in your career? Now, there are people who succeed, so don't get me wrong. But as an actor, I always thought as a man pretending to be straight and then acting, you're already playing two parts. First of all, you're playing the part of a straight man, which you've got to continually <laughs> be on top of. Then you're playing whatever character you're playing. That's a lot to drag around with, you know. And I just found, I mean, I worked and I did some wonderful things. Dream Girls was done there. Torch Song Trilogy came out of there. Um, I did a series called South Central. Of course, I recorded, you know, Nightmare Before Christmas. I did, I did some work there, some different things. But it never really embraced me. And I never really embraced it, you know. I did a series called uh, Sable, which we shot in Chicago. And I played a stand-up comedian. So it gave me a little wider berth of being myself, if you will, as an entity to play the character. Coming forward to now, I just feel like having watched the change in the community via the business and pride and gay and everything. Of course, I'll just make a footnote, which of course it is not. I lived through what was the arc and height of the AIDS epidemic, which took so many of my friends' breathtaking. I try not to think about it a lot because it is truly, truly, truly sad. Um, but that said to me all over again, people are dying uh, and people are trying not to deal with them because they're gay. You know, for the long time, as you know now, it's a common thing that the government never even said the word AIDS for like a year and a half, two years. People, friends, not just general people, friends were literally dying by the week and nobody was even acknowledging that they had existed and or were dying. So for me, that fueled me to say, look, you know what? I don't have any time to be hiding in anybody's closet. These people are dying because of who they are. And I would be disservicing the spirits of all of my friends that died if I were somewhere pretending not to be who I am, not only for myself, but for them, you know? And I thought, I can't, I can't do that. What I have to do is live with a career and live with a life that is afforded to me being openly who I am. As a person, as an African-American, as someone who has mixed race background, who uh, is gay, all these things that I am, I am what I am. And that's the thing. You might want to look that up. That's a recording of me saying <laughs> But seriously, um, that's it. I don't want life on any other terms, you know. So when pride comes around, I always think of the people that stood out there. I always try to remind some of the younger people that, you know, it wasn't the gym guys, the muscles and the things who fought at Stonewall. It was the drag queens. They took off those wigs and those high heels and they flung those bottles and bricks and fought for our rights and broke the ceiling and made it possible for us to go forward as gay people. 
there's there's you know less now than before because of things like Pose and RuPaul's Drag Race and things like that. There's a certain amount of respect for transgender and drag artists and things like that. But they are the architects of the gay pride, and it's important to remember that pride is about the battle and struggle. It's not about the drinks and the parties and the drink tickets and the parades and it. that's all great. But that's not really what pride is about. You have pride because of these other things. Therefore, you celebrate it in those ways. I think it gets a little confused sometimes. It's all about the party and the thing and the thing, and you forget what it's really about at the core. And if you're not thinking of the core, then what are you running around waving a flag about? As you should be, you know. Um, and now as a senior <laughs> in the mix of it all, it's very interesting because I've lived from when gay lib was just really taking hold. Of course, a Stonewall happened in the late 60s and I was certainly a child. But by the time I moved to New York, which was 1975, which was less than 10 years later, gay lib was just kind of really taking foothold and people were kind of living their lives out loud a little bit more, and especially in New York, which is where, of course, I've I went to. Um, so having watched the arc of that period where everybody was free and open and all the dance clubs in New York and the fun and Studio 54 and Paradise Garage and the Saint and all these great places that were temples of, uh, you know, it became a thing where if you weren't gay, people wanted to be gay. You know, because the gay community was leading the arts. They were the fashion people. They were the theater people. They were the architects. They designed. I mean, the gay community in New York, as well as London and Paris, all the other places. But New York, they were the energy of the city, literally. Not just saying nobody else was, but the gay community really was the turn, the big wheel in the middle of the thing. And um, having experienced that, and then having experienced when AIDS came in, uh, all the way to the quote unquote post AIDS period. Uh, I look back now and I think, man, I've lived through some very interesting times. And I can say proudly that I've always been true to myself through it. You know, uh, I never denigrated people who didn't do it because I was never an advocate of, you know, people out them, out them. I said, well, what good does that do? If they don't want to be out, you blowing a whistle on them and dragging them out of the closet, tearing the doorknob off and all these other things, that's not going to make them proud. That may fulfill something for you. But for the person you're doing that to, that just makes them feel exposed. And if they're not ready, they shouldn't be out. They should only come out when they can deal with it psychologically and spiritually and so forth. You outing somebody is about you. It's not about them. So I was never an advocate of that. I didn't, you know, so therefore people were closeted, quote unquote, I would let them know in my own way that I support you. I know you're gay. You know, I know you're gay, but I'm not going to denigrate you for not being out. I'll just say, I hope you do find yourself in truth because you'll be a happier human being, but that's your road. I'm on my road. That's your road. Um, I think people are more accepting now on a certain level. I think, I'm not sure there's two, two generations behind me. Uh, I think we've gained a lot of things. We've lost a lot of things. I think within the community, as we become more accepted and assimilated, we've started to lose the, some of the definitions of the community, all those places like Halstead and, and West Hollywood and 
West Village, those places that is Chelsea, places that used to be hubbubs of the gay community are now fractured because we don't have to come to a place where everywhere, which of course is what we were working for. But at the same time, I think we might've lost something in the process because there's a thing, there was a wonderful feeling about going to West Hollywood and knowing it was the gay capital of LA and being there and seeing gay people. It's the same thing with Halls, the same thing with the West Village, on and on and on. And now you go to some of these places and they're, they're a bit of a ghost town on some levels or only the bars are left. This, the feeling of community isn't really there. But I think that's just a matter of what you know we're dealing with in terms of evolution because now, gay dads and gay moms, single gay guys, and we live everywhere. We don't have to be all in one group, in one place, which was basically for safety more than anything. It's not only community. We don't really have to do that so much now. Um, and I pray we never have to feel like we have to do that again, but it did change things a bit, you know. And now with AIDS, of course, it changed the sense of, of, of how people connect. There's all kinds of things online. So, uh, again, being a senior, I'm not such an advocate of that. To me, there's nothing like standing in front of somebody and talking to them and getting to know them as a person, even if the eventual end of it is a physical connection. I want to know who I'm talking to. I want to push screen to the left, go, nah, nah, you know. To me, that's just a touch too impersonal. And I think, but that's a general thing that all of society is going through. We're sort of stepping away from each other as human beings and becoming more... Uh, digital, virtual, needless to say, the last year has brought everybody uh, to the land of virtual. But I think the interesting thing is coming out of it, knock on wood, we continue, it's making people appreciate what it means to sit down with someone, to have dinner with a friend, to actually hold someone in your arms and not just look at them on a screen. So I think that may have served some uh, purpose beyond what we might've thought, you know? But I'm, it's June, it's Pride Month. Um, I think it's something we all should always remember to celebrate, but most importantly, celebrate it for the right reasons and call those names, call Marsha P. Johnson, call all of those names, all those people who were the architects, you know, who were brave when there was no one else. They weren't just joining the group, they were creating the group. And that's really something to say. And you can go down through the years, Harvey Firestein, when he was out there doing, you know, International Stud and all the plays that became Tort Song Trilogy, even Tort Song Trilogy, he was way ahead. He was out there being loud, proud, and out when people were going, I don't know, I don't know. So people like that, you want to applaud, God rest him, Mark Crowley, who wrote, you know, Boys in the Band. You want to say, look, it may have been dated in terms of some of its psychology from the period, but it is who we were at that time. And when they did the revival, which I saw on Broadway, and of course the film version, I thought, yes, absolutely, that's our history. That's our history, you know, and now I think it's wonderful that with the African-American uh, community, well, I won't say community, but with African-Americans, you know, recognizing that Josephine Baker was bisexual, that Bessie Smith was bisexual, James Baldwin was gay. I mean, all of these people, uh, but people who were architectural to the gay community for African-Americans, which is still difficult because the African-American community is so religion-based that they still, we, I should say, still have a barrier to get past when we talk about accepting gay people. It's always interesting to me that as Christians, and we talk about how Christ's acceptance of everybody, if you put it in that vernacular, and then we talk about exclusion at the same time, they don't go together. 
you know, but that's another issue for another program. But I think there's work still to be done there. But so many people are so assured of who they are that they just stand up. And that's most important. And to remember all those people during Pride and to uh, uh, understand it's, it's a hard won freedom. It was won by people who took a lot of chances and suffered a lot. And to always remember that as part of what Pride is about. Everyone, thank you so yeah. much for this. This has been so it. It's been a lovely, lovely conversation. And I so appreciate your asking me. Oh, and I appreciate your doing it and all that you've said. Listeners, thank you for tuning in. And remember to come back next week when I'm joined by one of Broadway and Cabaret's funniest ladies, Christine Petty, appearing on Broadway as Mama Morton in Chicago, as well as in Little Me and Talk Radio. She is perhaps best known for her long stint off-Broadway in the long-running Forbidden Broadway and in LA in Forbidden Hollywood. She also made a hit in Musical the Musical and can be heard daily hosting on Broadway on Sirius XM. She appeared off-Broadway also in productions of The Mad Show, Miss Abigail's Guide to Dating, Mating, and Marriage, Jerry's Girls, and My Favorite Year, as well as on screen in The Sopranos and Steven Universe. Her popular cabaret show, There's No Business Like Snow Business, has been performed at 54 Below and many other illustrious venues. So make sure to come back next week for that, and thanks for listening.